2: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food,
0: we talk about music, with musical dudes,
3: finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
1: Hello, welcome, Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited to be sharing an all-new episode with you today, and we are in Europe. For the entire time, first stop is the Netherlands, where we sit down with Kevin and Amber of Stax Diner in Amsterdam. a recently opened American-inspired diner. We talk about the road to opening, using European ingredients to cook American food, and what you can expect on the soundtrack every time you swing in. And then we're heading over to Barcelona, where we sit down with Sergio Diaz de Rojas, whose new album, Huerte and Una Tarde de Verano came out on March 10th. So just two days ago, it's a beautiful album. We talk about his family, his grandfather and great aunt's inspiration on him and what it was like to throw parties at his house when he was a kid. And yes, it's everything you think. It is a lot of music, a lot of wine and a lot of great food. So please sit back, relax and enjoy snacky tunes here on heritage radio network. (laughs) Kevin and Amber, thank you for joining us all the way from Amsterdam. And I got to say, I wish I was sitting with you in Stax Diner having a beer because it looks absolutely cozy right now.
4: It is. It is. We've got these cute little glasses here too.
1: No, no. it's it, I, I saw the the beveling on, on the outside of the glass and I'm like, just pour them, pour them short, keep it cold, keep it coming, right?
4: Yeah, that's kind of that seems to be the philosophy here. I really took to that when I moved here, and would go to these little brown bars and the old men drink little, even smaller yeah. than this. And uh, I'll butcher the way you say it, but in a flauta, yeah, it's like a, a flute, you know. But it's a little thinner, you know, sort of glass, and that's exactly the point. So it stays cold. So,
1: yeah, I mean, I don't need a twenty-ouncer at once. I'll take two two tens. Um, so you two have. The privilege and pleasure of being our first restaurant we've ever had on the show from Amsterdam and while some people might know some other cities in, in Europe and that part of the world most people in America probably don't have a great grasp on the local culinary scene could you give us a little bit of an insight of what it's like what type of restaurants people can expect what's the community vibe
4: let, I'm going to let Amber go first on this this is her, her, her uh, stomping ground
5: yeah, um, I, I feel like there's a, a couple of groups of people that have been like um, setting some standards for Amsterdam for a couple of, couple of years, for sure. And they have like a certain type of style, like there's uh, the guys from Beneficer, for instance, they, that have like a couple of uh, restaurants and they always open like different types of concepts and they're like super creative kids. And there's this guy in North who also does quite similar stuff, um, opening like bars, opening restaurants, opening clubs. Mm. Um, Very exciting for like um, young people living here. It's always something, yeah, a little bit like edgy, uh, what they do. And I feel like, um, yeah, that's been super nice to have that. But also because there's like, it's a small uh, group that's been opening multiple restaurants it's been super nice to have something that has not been done here
3: before Mm -hmm.
5: so i feel like something like stack's diner is like so new and i hear it from all the people uh that have been in my community like wow this is not something that i've ever seen before or like i've never eaten like this before but at the same time it's so funny because it's so similar to you know like all the food that we eat because there's a lot of different layers of, of culture in it as well
4: well. and also Mm. i think i mean just to to step back too yeah like at least my perception and just studying and talking to people about food you know a lot of people will say in dutch culture the food's not very good you know that sure uh, historically there wasn't a a love of food here you know Mm -hmm. uh depends on who you talk to you know like and this is coming from dutch people telling me you know no no of course of course looking at food or looking at extravagant eating as kind of not necessary or, you know, and maybe that's rooted in some of the the Calvinist aspects of the country. (laughs) Oh, that far back. Yeah. No, I mean, but it is, it's also (laughs) like a lot of, well, no, because they had a real time of exuberance and richness. And then there's a real humility now to the culture of like kind of moving away from Mm -hmm. there has been for a while of not being too showy and not wasting money on things. They're frugal, um, going Dutch is, you know, a real thing right. <laughs> like, right, you know, right. Yeah. And, but what's happened, what Amber's talking about is in the last few years, there's been just a real rise of more contemporary food culture here. Yeah. And definitely the youth scene, there's much more of an interest in food. And I think, you know, a lot of these young chefs, especially Dutch chefs are figuring out well what is Dutch food for the first time on a mm. contemporary. What-
5: yeah, exactly. And since like five years, there, there's been like some stuff going on about, um, like Dutch Cuisine. And what I feel that it is, like, it's very personal to me, um, is that it's been very much about the history of uh, crops that we've been having here. And also just, like, looking at, like, what 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 is the thing that we cannot find in the supermarket anymore, but has a lot of history with the Dutch culture? So right. So, for instance, the the carrots, you know, like the rainbow-colored carrots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How we chose the, the carrots to become um, orange at a certain point, um, because it was, like, a very... Uh, Dutch thing like we wanted to have, have everything in orange so because it's like a national color so um, the carrots uh, we wanted them orange so they became orange so like small things like that I've been like uh, coming back into the kitchen a lot and the style of cooking has been always to me a little bit of mix between um, French German Italian And mm. mm. then with the produce that has like all of that history uh, and in, in the contemporary
4: in- scene, I feel like Copenhagen's had a big influence on this. Yeah, sports, yeah. Uh, sure. Like, yeah, you know. sure. I mean, I think what, what to, to say is that there's like a lot. Amsterdam is a pretty exciting new food city because there, it's a really new uh, thing to have this many different options and all of these new chefs that are Dutch and finding and figuring out and writing the next chapter for, for what that means. And what's interesting about Amsterdam, like New York, is well, what does it mean to be? Amsterdam food or New York food, and it's kind of a pretty international transient place. You know, a lot of people right. yeah. in and out of here. They've historically been trade like a, a country that trades a lot. You see their thumbprint in New York. Um, you see that over here in the west, you know, and in the south. Like it's a really diverse area, um, too. And there's like, you know, it's it's one of those cities that you know, it's a cool place to open a diner because a diner concept can kind of be very flexible and it sort of has to yes. absorb the area around it and kind of reflect the owners and reflect yeah. the locals. And, you know, it it, it makes, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense um, to do something like this here because you can be really inclusive and do a lot of different stuff. Um,
1: also interesting because in America there is this concept of of a diner and it's like, you know a greasy spoon with eggs and pancakes and things like that. But when you really dig into diner culture in America, it is much more melting pot. And depending on where you are in America, whether it's, um, you know, up in Queens where you have like Greek diners down the South where you have more of like a Southern bent or, or things like that, or even in Jersey where you have like pasta and Italian bent, it is this like melting pot of American food. And so looking at it from the outside in from the Netherlands to America What is the perception of American food? What's the perception of American diner? Is that even a concept? Because I feel like it's so specific to um, the States. Yeah. What do people think about it just as a general concept?
4: Depends on how you talk.
5: Yeah, it really does depend. But if I look at my own perspective and like how I met Kevin and like the moment that he told me, like we, we met at a market and then, we met on the street again, and he just told me, like, Hey, I'm opening a restaurant, but I had no clue what it was going to be. And then he took me into the space, showed me everything. He was like, I'm going to, I want to open an American diner. And I was like, Oh, fuck. Um, is it going to be like uh, pancakes <laughs> and burgers and fries? And I was like, I don't, I don't really want to do that. Like, I don't, I don't even like cooking fries. I don't even like fries. I don't know. It's a weird thing, but. Um, and then he really started taking me through like the whole menu and it, it, w- it was so strange because it was all very familiar in a, in mm-hmm,
2: a way, mm-hmm.
5: but it was not so in front of me, like it was not available to me, you know, like mm. it, it's, it's so strange, it, like open a small door of something that felt very familiar, but has never been available. So it was quite a quite an experience.
4: Well, and I think we're doing a pretty progressive concept with the diner. Like, you know, I mean, I grew up in the South. My Mm -hmm. reference points are like actually Greek Southern diners. So imagine a Greek restaurant, Get spanakopita, but the way they did their barbecue chicken is with like a North Carolina style vinegar sauce, you know. And so you would have this like melting pot kind of, you know, these kind of places. And then, you know, over the years. I've worked at a lot of different contemporary spots in Richmond. But then when I got to New York, there was a restaurant called Diner that we know we've eaten there together.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
4: Darren. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, you know, one of those places that really blew up. And their flip on the diner was we're going to have, you can, you know, their set menu was like an omelet and a burger. And then every night they had 10 different specials, apps, mm-hmm. trays, desserts, and that's how they really did it. And so it was, you know, kind of part of this, moment of you know the food really kind of changing and the way people were doing stuff like this in brooklyn during this time a lot of people laugh at this now this very hipster Mm -hmm. i know or whatever people want to classify but regardless those guys were doing something really great you know and i think what we're doing is kind of a you know we're doing something new and interesting but in a very different way in that like we have a much more expansive set menu we do do Mm -hmm. um, but I'm southern so I want biscuits and cornbread on the diner menu, right? Like uh we're not a southern food restaurant, but that's one of the staple things of like our bread program is for yeah. And Amber's really good at she has a baking background actually before moving over into also doing savory food, so she's uh incredibly good at executing uh, and developing the recipes together of, you know, for biscuits, cornbread, key lime pie. I mean, we're making homemade fucking graham crackers here, breaking them back down and making the crust for a lime pie out of it. So, I mean, I never we I've never you don't see a lot of that, you know, uh, at these types of of spots. Right. So there's a level of finesse that's going into this, but we're not presenting food in a way that's stuffy. It's very comfortable. It's very ingredient driven. It is what it is. Uh, It's not a lot of composed dishes, actually not much at all. None of the main entrees or plates are really that composed. Maybe it's fish and greens, or you know, steak and mashed potatoes. It's it's simple stuff. But then the the stuff that we're using and the way we're cooking things, you know, comes from a range of different experience that we have. That's a little more high technique. Uh, Mm. We joke around; it's low country, high technique. It's kind of like Hmm. that sort of the tension that's coming together. You know, the other
1: thing about a diner is the design part about it because so many of them you think of these like chrome monstrosities and some and some are a little bit more humble and kevin i know that you have a big design background as well um but obviously bringing that sort of american perspective both the design and food into a european country some people might be like we're okay mr american like please do not come in here and tell us like how to design our menus, how to design our restaurants, like, we're good. How did you ingratiate yourself in the local food scene? Because I know you were there for a few years before you opened this spot, but what did you bring with you? How did it evolve? How did you do it with respect to the, to the local scene?
4: Um, I mean, it's there's multiple parts that, I mean, I met a lot of people here. I owe a lot of credit to my friend, Malvin Witts. He's like a legendary DJ here. You know, you're in a scene of house music, electronic music. Yes, he dabbles in that, but he's like bigger in hip hop, R&B as well and can kind of bring all those roles together. He's, you know, very well-known guy here. And he is, a, you know, as we joke, we're both fat kids. We just want to eat all the time, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He knows all the chefs. He knows a lot of, you know, different people in the food scene. And he really took me around and introduced me to a lot of people. So I met a lot of folks that way. And I think but I think the way I learned about Dutch culture was through the Dutch Brown Cafe and mm. The Dutch brown Cafe are these. There's a lot of 100, 150, even 300 year old brown cafes in Amsterdam. Wow. And it feels like you're inside of a boat. It's really dark. It's really woody. They have a lot of different beers. It's a lot of, you know, it's kind of sleepy. Um, and when I first moved here, I really spent a lot of time in those places talking to people because I, of course, am working on. Again, like you mentioned, global design and branding projects for night mm-hmm. Jordan, and, you know, doing a lot of different hospitality and hotel work here in Europe. Uh, but then I really just enjoy going and kind of being anonymous and sitting at a brown cafe at a bar and talking to random Dutch folks to learn about, well, well, what do you think of Americans? And I can tell you, I've pissed <laughs> two of them off where they're like, they listen to me talk. They're like, you're too fucking ambitious. You're so American. All you care oh, yeah. about is work. And, you know, that you,
1: European ceiling that you sometimes learn about. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, yeah.
4: And then it takes me about an hour and a bunch of flouches, a few small beers here and there. And usually sure. them, and we've come back around, and we're hugging and we understand each other. But I spent a lot of time there trying to understand what that is. And there was something I kept seeing in like the function of a brown cafe and the function of a diner, mm. you know, in that you can meet the wealthiest person in the Netherlands at a brown cafe and you can... Yeah sit down with someone who doesn't care about money or working at all. And is. I live in Wester park where it's like an old socialist sort of area. And you have a lot of people who hate money and are the anti exact opposite. Those same people though are sitting around at the same counter drinking beers, hanging out. And there's something to a diner that does something similar. There's some great equalizer yes. in a diner. Yeah. Counter. Um, you know? And so when we came into this, that was the design approach. Aesthetically was, I was, you know, wanted to bring together, you know, uh, the wood warmth. The, the Dutch have a term, gezellig, probably saying that wrong too. Hazelik.
5: Hazelik. Hazelik. Yeah.
4: Um, which speaks about coziness. And the root word of it is Hazel, which is companion or friend. Mm-hmm. And I think the ways it speaks to that full comfort you have with your best friend, mm. the perfect temperature, and the perfect light, and the perfect moment. And you feel this really present kind of specialness. So, that's what these Dutch brown cafes are, and it was like, how do you bring that to the American diner aesthetic, um, and how do you avoid the cliche American diner '50s sort of bullshit that I think everybody mm. expected us to do here? Sure. And so that was the design, the diagram, and that was the challenge. And I was able to find some old Pennsylvania Dutch diners yeah, that, sure. that were really woody, had a lot of wood, and they were like kind of '70s in style. Um, and just studied some of the right refs and pulled those things together. And then I worked with someone who's French and Pennsylvania, grew up in Pennsylvania, but was born in Paris. And she's an architect named Pauline. And we worked together to flesh out the design over you know a period of a few months. But I don't know, we were really trying to be very cognizant not to be those asshole Americans coming in and trying to slap something purely American because again, a diner has to reflect Amsterdam. It can't just be yes. an American concept. So yeah, um, yeah, that was, that was the approach and that's how we got to this place. And it's this real hybrid of like, you know, lots of painted, uh, high gloss wood. Uh, we found an American oak tree that got hit by lightning through a friend. So we were able to upcycle the wood. It's really like a more warm, darker, grainy wood than European oak. Um, you know, it was a lot of these things fell into place naturally. Um, and that was the, the sort of design approach.
1: Um, well, I am excited to hear a little bit more about the menu you put together and how you bridge the gap, at least with the cuisine as well. And I want to take a quick musical break. We have a song from the archives, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the dishes, about how It's been received and how the opening went just a few weeks ago. Here we go. Song from the Archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Amber Lux. How'd I do? Good? Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, And Kevin Kearney of Stacks Diner all the way from Amsterdam. And we're talking a little bit about the design and the research you put into it. And I want a little bit move over to the food because you know, Kevin, you mentioned bringing biscuits and you guys are talking about using rainbow carrots. And I think it's one thing in theory to have this ideal of saying like, Hey, we want to push food in a certain direction. But as my friend Carter Adams once said, the French are going to French, which I've always taken to be like, listen, you can try, but we're doing, you know, we're doing the recipes our way. So how have you been able to merge these two cultures, the American diner um, to fit, you know, um, the Amsterdam palette and what has been the response to some of the dishes that you haven't compromised on?
5: Yeah. So we've been using a lot of uh, Dutch produce. Like we've been really focusing on, um, getting everything very local. Um, so that's also always been one of the, um, focus points that, okay, it's a diner and it's going to be in Amsterdam. Like Kevin already said, you know, like it's going to merge a little bit with the, um, with the environment that you're in. So we've been getting um, beans that are have history with uh, Holland. They're called soldier beans. Mm. This is something that, um, that, that we're going to put on the menu eventually. Um, we have, for instance, a seasonal winter salad that we only use the vegetables that are actually grown here. So it's not like you're going to get a cucumber or a, a tomato or anything that's mm. not
3: um,
5: going to fit this environment um also all, all of the meats uh we have a very beautiful uh local farmer um johan and he actually rotates the the pig pens with um his garden so just to keep the 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 ground fertilized so these are things that um i feel like it's very dutch also what we've t- talked about like you know like getting real deep into like the the dutch produce and having yeah. a little that that, that history just like flowing into the diner and at the same time i've noticed that cooking with kevin and um like getting to know this um american heritage through you Mm -hmm. that it connects so much with things that i have eaten in my youth and i had like my mom's from indonesia she cooks everything but my dad he only cooked like um cabbage green beans sausage yeah. uh, my my
1: dad's a liver and onions guy my mom cooks the world and my dad's got like one dish
5: yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> my dad had the same thing and it was you know sometimes when we eat stuff here it's, it just brings me back to those moments mm-hmm. and there was also this moment that um uh i was i was on the bike and i was thinking about this thing that my mom used to make and it was uh, corn cornflakes covered in chocolate and then she put like these little Um, smarty things on top of it and was like Mm. she would make that like as a snack and i called kevin up and i was like we gotta make this i don't know it it feels right to put something like that on the menu and he was like yeah it's called a crunch bar (laughs) What? (laughs) no way (laughs) like how is that possible so it's like constantly these small little things that i feel like so connected to to the the
4: or like the, the apple butter, like or like I, the
5: apple butter, you know. Yeah, and,
4: you know, one of the things on the menu is like a breakfast sausage that you know. I when I was growing up, my stepdad, his family had a pig farm, and my his dad is so tight, uh, and so for Christmas, you know, what does he give you? Apple butter from his apple orchard in a jar, and sausage from a pig he had killed and ground the, the sausage up, and it's like a hot sage kind of sausage. So I was like, let's put that on a biscuit. Uh, you know, hot steak so- breakfast sausage, apple butter, buttermilk biscuit. And I gave her a bite. She just went had the full ratatouille <laughs> moment. Mm. Those same flavors of like, but, you know, of pork and apple. Yeah. You know, um, but anyways, yeah, I think, you know, the first this. it's interesting because for me, I cooked with a lot of different people. I mean, I think the food is have heft- the opening menus. Obviously, I wanted there to be some southern staples. Yeah. But- yeah we don't call it a Southern food restaurant. We actually talk about home style cooking. It's written on the awning right outside Mm -hmm. when you come in. And I think for us and what we're doing is it's home, it's like cooking and being at home, but it's a little nicer than a Wednesday night at your house. Maybe it's more like the full spread at your grandma's on a Sunday. That's Mm -hmm. a little bit more robust and there's more attention to detail. And, you know, maybe you wear a sweater or something or whatever, but, um, so, That's kind of the conceptual umbrellas around homestyle cooking. Of course, this opening menu has a lot of North Carolina references. I Mm -hmm. used to work with Gregory, who grew up in South Carolina and has built a pretty good reputation with James Beard out of Richmond with White Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, Roosevelt. And um, he, you know, there's a lot of influences in the food I do and way of cooking from him. But then also, you know, in New York, I worked around some great chefs and cooks like Cesar Ramirez and Peter Serpico. And people like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that led me, those guys had a lot of influence from Arzak and some of these places in Basque Country. So when I moved to Europe, I went to Northern Spain, spent a ton of time, and I couldn't get over the simplicity and ingredient-focused way that they cook. Like, you know, just like a whole roasted fish, the most simple shit you've ever had. It's the best yeah. turbo you've ever had, or like a big steak, or like, which they call a chulaton, or when you go and get razor clams. It's not a lot of composed dishes. It's the best razor clams you've ever had. Yes, Cooked perfectly on the plancha, put on a plate, and that's it. That's what it is. So there's something to, you know, a lot of different influences that kind of came together in what we're doing, and we're just sort of making up the rules as we want. So the menu is, you know, we've got pimento cheese and pickles. We're making Mm. some pickles. Buying some pickles from a guy that's killing it locally. This dude alone. Um, We're you know doing really nice big cuts of of like uh, this. Pork that we get—that's you know, farmed fifteen minutes away or an hour away, depending on which farm they pull from. <laughs> we can only get it every two weeks, though. You know, and we're sure. we're rotating through the animals, so we're buying a Boston butt, we're buying ground pork for the sausage, and we're buying a limited number of chops. And so we kind of work through all of that over the course of a weekend. Versus, hey, you can just always get a pork chop here. It's not, you know, that reliable. But most Fridays you can get a pork chop, but then it's going to sell out. Uh, same thing with the, any of the other meats and stuff that we're doing. It's, you know, buying stuff that's pretty local, a uh, lot of organic and bio product. But we don't limit ourselves to that because a lot of smaller farmers just can't afford to or aren't organized enough to really get the certification. But the way that they're farming is just sure a,
1: it's, it's a name. It's, it's yeah name. yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: So and for us, we're more I'm more interested in knowing the farmer than industrial or organic. If I had to choose, um, we're going to go with a smaller farmer that maybe isn't certified organic. But we go and see what they're doing. They're doing things really responsibly um, and taking care of the land that they're working on. And that's better than just blindly buying some more mass market bioproduct.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So now that you've been open cool. a couple of weeks and all this is great in theory and, and late night talks over small, <laughs> small glasses of beer. What was the reception? How have people responded? Um, how do you feel now that the public has has gotten to enjoy it and have been able, of course, to have their say? This is in a newspaper today. It's, well, since this is an audio
4: only podcast. I'll let Amber, I'll let Amber tell you. She'll give you the local what, how do you think people have responded?
5: Well I feel like the people in Amsterdam they really like to try new things like it's, mm. it's been very much a thing like um, they love exotic things they love to try um, things that they don't really know before they, they like to go to new places. So what you see usually here in Amsterdam is like a new place opens and everybody goes there. It's like immediately like what's happening? What's going on and you know like just yeah discovering a lot of different things. So I've never really felt like it was a concept that uh, people wouldn't understand necessarily. Mm-hmm. I always felt like it, it was familiar enough for people to just come relax, do their thing, um, chill, and not be like too hyper-focused on what is this and it's so unfamiliar or anything like that.
4: But the feedback I've heard, the the, the phrases and things that I've sure. heard at home for me are, and the de- design wise, the place looked like it's been here 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Love it. So yep. that's amazing. Food wise, this is the place I didn't know I was missing. Like finally mm. a place to get, there's a lot of smaller plate food here. People eat lighter, a uh, lot of like smaller share plates. And this is like more about like getting a pork chop that three of you can split or getting a half of a brill, which is like a cousin of a turbo, big flat fish,
1: yeah.
4: a small halibut in some ways. Or, you know, and, you know, getting a larger format piece like that, that you can split and have sides like cheese grits and skillet potatoes and mashed potatoes. And people, I think, are really responding well to that concept. And it's cool. We have two different customers. Somebody's coming in here and they're more budget conscious. They want to spend, you know, 12 bucks on a biscuit. They get a beer uh, and a side. They're eating for around 20, 22 bucks. And then there's another customer that's coming in and, you know, they're eating a half of a brill themselves for 55 euros <laughs> meant for two or three people, you know, and they just they're, they don't eat out, eat out that much. And they're like, this is a big night. And I just want to. Sure. Yeah. Act. So the reception so far has been excellent. We're in the paper today in the Peru which is like, what's that? The equivalent? It's like the local du- Amsterdam, New York Times. It's the yeah, official. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. And it, we got a We got a, a like the, a the orange lady, if you will. Yeah, we got a three quarter we got a three quarter page spread, big photo. The headline says "A little slice of New York in the West," which there we is go. pretty awesome, you know. And they they really get it. And like, I think you know one of the quotes in there that the the writer really liked that he got from us was that I think we're making we can make better American food here than in America. Because we get better ingredients. Of course, they love that. You know, there's a lot of pride here. Of course. Um, And I will say, I I have not I think Amber's, for example, the biscuits that we've developed and that we're making here that, you know, have Amber's fingerprint all over them are, they're the best biscuits I've ever had. And it's, it's there's a lot of finesse involved, but also the level of buttermilk that we can get here Mm -hmm. versus what it costs for you to get in America. You couldn't use that buttermilk in a biscuit. It wouldn't work. Right, so we can affordably get butter and buttermilk, and the level of the type of flour that yeah. we're. Yep. I mean, she's driving out like an hour and a half, driving me crazy, driving <laughs> out an hour and a half, very specific flour from a from a mill, windmill that she loves. Um, and it, you know, when you bring all these things together, there's a, like these biscuits are the, the best. I can't wait for you to eat them. It's gonna blow your
1: mind. Oh my god! I mean, let me let me look at flights from, to Amsterdam now. I want to make sure before we we, we have to say goodbye because we've talked about the food, and we've talked about the design, but I and I know this because I saw some of the videos. But there's a great soundtrack at Stacks as well, and I'd love to know what goes into it. How much of it is you know local music, European music, American music? What's the vibe? What are you setting? Who has control of uh, of the uh, iPod shuffle? Um, every it's, night
4: it's a mix uh my wife laura was Shout killed out. The other night you know laura really I well love her. she she um she has really eclectic taste i mean mm-hmm. laura grew up her mother was always dating jazz musicians in new york so laura grew up around and has and but also you know she has a she grew up in new york city she has a lot of friends from south yeah. america uh she has pretty interesting influences and in musical taste and the other night like some music producer was in here and he comes up to me. He's like, who is controlling music? This is, this is impeccable taste. And I, of course I had to tell Lauren that, you know, <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, listen, you can tell her, but like, can you, t- can you tone down the compliment a little bit? Just a yeah, little bit.
4: Don't boost her up too much. But, and it, it's a mix of that. She's from. great you know, taste. That's why you married her. I did. She has incredible taste and she grew up in New York city and yeah. there's an eclecticness to yes, New York city. Like you can do in Amsterdam too, though. It's very eclectic, I man. It's a collection of things that build, you know, the identity, uh, Othello, you know, my, uh, my other business partner in stacks, he's a partner in the restaurant, but also we run Stax studio together. Mm-hmm. We have an office in Brooklyn and one here, he, you know, he's a Filipino kid that grew up in Virginia beach. And like, he has like a whole, those kids just have incredible taste in music. Mm-hmm. I met in Richmond, you know, uh, as you know, coming from Virginia beach as well as like a crazy, like breeding ground of like some of the best musicians in the world. Um, And most important culturally uh, and that crossover between like hip hop and indie rock and punk and skating and sort of that, that kind of flow. So Othello makes a lot of the playlists here. Mr. Wicks, my, one of my, you know, good homies I told you about, that's really helped me here. He made a bunch of playlists for us. Um, So we have kind of a rotating list of them and it's, it's all over the place, dude, just like all the references are, you know, for the restaurant. And yeah, people feel like people, I never thought people would come in here. I thought people would come in here and be like, oh, it looks American. It looks Southern, the food's Southern. But we get a lot of people being like, I feel like I'm in New York in here. Um,
1: well, I mean, New Amsterdam, if I. Yeah. If
4: but Dutch <laughs> people saying, oh, I can tell you guys are from New York.
1: Like, oh man, is there, is there any better
4: compliment in the world? It's the best compliment. And I best. think it's that eclecticness. It's just yeah. that eclecticness of like this random collection of all these different things that somehow kind of works.
1: Awesome. Well, Kevin and Amber, congratulations. If people want to check out uh, what you've built and then also come by, where can they go? How can they follow along with your
4: StacksDiner. adventure? StacksDiner.com at Diner on the gram. Um, slide into the DMs. Let's Yeah. Look at us let's do stuff that's what i did uh listen thank you for the time oh
1: man i gotta start looking at flights for real whenever okay. i know i know please, I know. Come. please um, come with
4: or without the family we can do a boy trip, or you can oh we can God. fam it up it's one of the best cities in the world for kids
1: no i know i got little ones and the little ones i'm like i want to bring you to europe all the time because it's just the best uh congratulations so excited thank you for spending the time congratulations on the article coming out today as well We have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
2: With multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio.
1: Sergio, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for taking the time out of your album release week to chat with us. We really appreciate it.
6: Thank you for having me. Very very excited to to have this experience.
1: Um, so this is Monday and the album comes out Friday. I'm going to probably butcher the name of the album, but Muerte and Una Tarde de Verano.
6: That was really good. <laughs> oh, thank you so much.
1: How does it feel? How does it feel to have this album come out to come to fruition?
6: It's it's very exciting. I haven't felt this excited about music in such a long time. It's, it's my second album, eight years after the first one. So... Um, it feels almost like it's the first time again. Mm.
1: Now, to be fair, you've released other music in between and you've done a ton of other projects. But, you know, eight years is a long time to put out something as your own album. Why the long wait? What happened? You know, what did you just not feel ready to put out something else that was this full scope of work?
6: Uh, yeah, it's a combination of of various uh, factors. I think um, in in first, I was in the process of moving from Peru to Spain, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of of things to take care about that didn't give me the the time or energy to really drown in in composing. Um, and then, of course, I, I didn't really feel that I had something to say. I, mm. I, I don't enjoy so much making music for the sake of making music. Mm. Uh, I really enjoy having like a concept around it and having uh, something I, I want to share with, with the world. So that's why the long
4: wait.
1: Mm. I was reading about the inspiration of this album, and there was two that came to mind um, that really I felt were like such probably on the same spectrum because they both relate to the inspiration of of the music but the first one I want to talk about was how cats and their movements played into this album what is it about their animal and what is it about the, the way that they move around that uh, helped bring this album to life
6: well cats there's there's a piece dedicated to them in the album um each piece is really dedicated to two very important things in my life and 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 cats are one of them, and I love this innocence, you know, the pure mm. pureness and innocence of, of cats and animals in general, which was kind of also the the, the approach I had uh, when making the album. Everything was quite quite intu- intuitive,
3: mm-hmm. if that's
6: how one uh, says that, mm-hmm. um, like a child discovering something unaware of of the world's uh, preconceptions, right? Very very playful. Um, not only in the composing, but also in the sound design, the mixing, everything was quite um, innocent and intuitive in the sense and exploring like like a cat, I guess.
1: Mm. I mean, it's it's beautiful. And there is a, a playfulness in the album that does really come through that you, you do get for when you see, you know, maybe a cat in a sunbeam more or something like that. Yes. Um, and the other is your grandfather figures a lot. Into this album and and his passing, um, I know you come from a musical background. But who was your grandfather to you? What was the inspiration? What's his role in this album as far as an influence?
6: Well, um, my grandpa was uh, a very like popular musician at, at at his time here in the I think in the seventies or so, um, and and his sister, my 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 great aunt Elsa. Uh, she was, or she is, uh, an amazing pianist and composer. Mm. Um, and having this kind of of of, of um, influence in the family, of inspiration, it's it's really special. I I don't think often about it, but um, sometimes it when I'm feeling down or or, or with not a lot of uh, motivation concerning my my craft. Uh, remembering that that I have such talented and, and and wonderful musicians in in my family can be a, a really nice uh, boost mm-hmm. um, my my grandpa didn't really s- see me play piano much only once when I was just twelve years old I think um, and I didn't really enjoy his talents that much because I was too young to 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 of be course. interested in, sure. in, in I didn't even know who he was when I was a kid. Um, now, as, a, as an adult, I have really uh, started listening to his music and, and paying attention uh, and, and, and checking also at what people used to write about him. And, and it's really beautiful. And then my, my, my great aunt Elsa, his sister, she has been my piano teacher since I was a, a child. Oh, wow. Until the day I left Peru, she, she was very important in my musical development.
1: That's amazing. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your family, but I'd love to hear a song first. What's the first song you're going to play for us?
6: Um, well, since we're talking about it, it can be Canción para auto
1: mm Great. And this is dedicated to them, I, I imagine. Yes. Okay. Well, here we go Sergio Dia de Rojas live on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes and that was just such a beautiful piece and you know coming from a family of musicians not just one person or two but a whole family in the way that you did has got to be very special. When did you first fall in love with music and making music and were you pressured or did you feel that you had to go into professional music making or was your family like you can love music, but this cannot be your life.
6: Uh, I mean, I was lucky enough that there was really not not much um, uh, external influence. It, it was, at the end, all about my, my own decisions. Um, I think I fell in love with music when when I started, I start, I started studying uh, classical piano. When I was 11, my aunt taught me pieces by Chopin, Bach, uh, Debussy, Mozart, etc. And I really found... Um, so much beauty in it. And even if I'm not really that good of an of a academic pianist, mm. um, I have always, anyway, enjoyed uh, performing these, these composers' works. Um, and then when I was around 18 or 19, I started composing. Mm. And, and that was because I really wanted to spend my life making music, but I didn't want to be a, a, a classically trained pianist. I didn't mm. want to be part of, of that world. It, it didn't make me happy, so I was kind of lost, uh, trying to find what, how to spend my life making music, but with something that I actually want. And and around that time, I came across the works of of composers like Niels Fram, Olaf Arnalds, Arnold, mm-hmm. and 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 for the first time, I saw that there were people alive making music, writing this kind of music that has some sort of connection to classical music, but that is still so contemporary, so relatable. And that's when I dared to, to also compose. Oh. And uh, it happened so like naturally. And yeah, I have been composing since then.
1: I mean, I can see the parallels and the inspiration between those artists that you listed, because you do have that same lightness and sort of sparseness, but feels very rich and, and warm and very emotional. Um, before we get away from your family, it's very rare that we talk to people who have such a big musical love. Um, what were the family gatherings like? Was it like a lot of food, a lot of music? I have in my mind this like it's like you're at a house and someone's on the piano and someone's singing and someone's cooking. Like, take, you know, what what was like a family get together like? Is was uh, I- am I imagining something that's more like <laughs> like a Disney Hollywood version of it? Or or is that what it was like?
6: No, it's really what it was like. Um, (laughs) I have a very special memory from when I was a kid, from when my parents bought the the piano, the first piano we had. And so we made, uh, I think it was my mom's birthday that she invited everyone um, Mm. to, to our apartment. And it was my grandpa, my great aunt and all the family, all the cousins, all the uncles and aunts. And there was a moment where they were playing like six people on the piano, oh. just improvising. And, you know, a random person was just drinking a little bit of wine. Then they got close to the piano and started improvising like it's so easy and then left again. It, it was really beautiful and, and fun.
1: I love that. I love that. And it seems like even though maybe some of your family was rooted in a little bit more classical or traditional type of writing music, were they supportive when you discovered your own style, your own voice and, and said, this is the direction I want to go in?
6: Yes, absolutely. My, my great aunt that it's such a amazing classically trained pianist. She, she was probably my, my supporter, number one.
3: Mm. And,
6: and actually having that kind of background is very important to, to, to have more resources. And, and, mm-hmm. and
3: mm-hmm.
6: yeah, when, when composing and I mean, my, my grandpa it was a popular musician he made salsa and Latin jazz. What was kind his name? Of things. Otto de rojas mm-hmm. so he there was like a, a bit of both worlds in in the family
1: but having that foundation and understanding your fundamentals and then building off of that, I think is indicative of the music you make because it's rooted in. This very strong base of knowledge.
6: I, I think so. I, I I never really think about it. Um, I always thought that that my influences could be more connected to to the contemporary composers that that and this community I'm part of. But then sometimes I hear people saying that they hear some sort of uh, Peruvian vibe in my music, uh, or that they hear a lot of Japan, which is because of my aunt's influence, and I just. It's it's just nice to to know the kind of perception people have. Uh, it's personally not something I really think too much about.
1: It's there. It's a, it's yeah. it's subconsciously it's, or unconsciously. Yes. Uh, let's hear another song. Um, what do you want to play for us next? What do you have? What's the story behind it?
6: Flores secas en un jarrón hecho a mano.
1: And what's the story behind this this track?
6: This this. Peace refers to the action of pressing and drying flowers. Um, I, it symbolizes these little things in life that um, through the years I have learned to, to appreciate and that make um, bring so much beauty into my everyday life.
1: Amazing. Well, here we have another song live from Sergio Diaz de Rojas here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes and digging into your work. And I know we talked a little bit about this at the top, even though you've, this is your second album, you've done so much collaboration over the years. And what really struck me was your collaboration across different mediums, a lot of film work. And I see it a lot in the videos you made for your music as well. How do these partnerships come about? What do you like about working within the medium of film what inspires you in matching your music to something more visual?
6: Um, I, I, it it just happens naturally. Since since the very first uh, release I, I I I made in two thousand fifteen with my first album, I I was somehow obsessed with the idea of not only having the music out, but that it should be accompanied by illustrations and music videos and poetry. Um, it just felt Right. Since the music is instrumental and, and there is not an obvious way to, to, to understand what I'm trying to say with it, uh, other than the title, I felt that maybe having all this audiovisual support around it could be a good way to, to help people really understand what, what I was trying to say um, in case they were interested in it in it, of course, because sometimes it's also nice to just listen to the music and create your own uh, idea of what it is about Mm -hmm. and relate Mm -hmm. to it, and that's also precious. So, both options, right? So, for those that just want to enjoy the music or those that want to dig more into the concept of, 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 of it. And, I mean, the collaborations... Mostly happen by by happy accidents. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's people that I met on Tumblr many years ago, oh, or on yeah. Instagram. I mean, if you're
1: saying Tumblr, yeah, yeah, definitely
6: yeah, <laughs> That's, yeah. Um, or Instagram, or yeah, 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 just yes, doing research online. On Vimeo, I have also come across wonderful mm. filmmakers. Um, yeah, it's it just happens, and very grateful for it.
1: Now you mentioned that you. Um, were in Peru uh and you have now moved to Spain yes um what wanted you to make that move were you looking for new inspiration what drew you to Spain with some of the collaborations you're doing based um in and around the area you moved to what brought you there
6: um well um the main reason is that it's almost kind of impossible to make a living as a musician or, or any sort of artist in, in Peru. Mm. It's not really that. Um, it's difficult everywhere in the world, yeah. but uh, in Europe you have definitely way more chances than, than, than in Peru, especially I, I have never had, you know, a, a specific contacts inside the media or um, or the music venues where one can make uh, shows. And so, it was pretty much being alone and, and fighting against the, the bubbles that already exist, right. In, 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 the music community in Lima, no matter the, the music style. Um, so I thought that maybe moving to, to Europe where I already had some connections to some record labels and, mm. and, and, and mm-hmm. concert series and some other composers uh, could be the, 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 the best move for, for my career. Um, also, in a not not music music related uh, topic, I, I was never so happy in 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 my hometown. It's mm. I I grew up, you know, playing the music of European composers, and then studying French and 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 watching Europe independent European cinema, and and that was the kind of things I was uh, uh, nourishing myself with, and and I wanted more more of that, and I didn't feel so happy and comfortable in in the environment I had improve.
1: But now that you've had time and space removed from where you grew up, does a little bit of nostalgia wash over it? And you go like, oh, I sort of miss this. Oh, I still still love that. Do you yearn for your home country at times?
6: Yes. Yes. Uh, happens all the time. Uh, everybody <laughs> yeah. told me that would happen, and I would laugh about it. And then it, it actually happened. Um, I mostly miss my family because my yeah, parents, my little sister, uh, my my great aunt Elsa, everybody's there. Um, and then, of course, I miss uh, some specific places. There's this district called Varanco, which is like the artistic bohemian part of the city. There's actually one a piece in the album dedicated to to that to the place, where I spent my most creative creative years mm. uh, in in Peru and uh, playing shows, meeting other artists and. Uh, working as a barista uh, serving coffee um, it was a really nice uh, period of, of 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 my life to to explore a bit more to learn a bit more and yeah so there's definitely things i i miss a lot about about peru
1: i mean do you miss the food have you found some replacements in spain i mean it's nothing wrong with spanish food culture
6: i mean i am I'm, I'm kind of a food nerd so i i love trying all sort of of foods everywhere I go, um, and I can I can luckily cook Peruvian food here because there's a huge Peruvian community. So you go to the central market, you find yes. all the right ingredients, yeah. and, and you can cook. Then also Spanish food is delicious, and so yeah, it's I mean sometimes it's not so as cheap, <laughs> right, to, to yeah. cook uh, food that I used to eat there, but. I, I try to do it as often as possible.
1: Let me ask, what are you cooking? Where are you eating?
6: What I am, sorry? C-
1: cooking?
2: Ah,
6: yeah. Uh, when I cook Peruvian food, um, I'm making like lomo saltado, ají mm. de legina. A couple of times we tried making ceviche, which is like my favorite dish, but that was not so su- successful. <laughs> um, and then I cook a lot of uh, Italian food. um I've also recently learned to uh, to cook goulash from, from Hungary.
1: Oh, that's my people's food.
6: Oh, that's nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice goulash. Oh, yeah. Some crusty bread. Yes, please. Yes, yes,
6: yes. It was so... Uh, I went to Hungary as part of of, of of a tour and and I tried the food. I, I fell in love and then I was like, I have to learn.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great food. Great food for the wintertime. Yes. Um so listen, I want to make sure we have enough time for one more song, but albums coming out and you're also playing some shows. What's the rest of the year or the next few months look like for you?
6: Well, there is a, a spring tour. I'm playing to a couple of uh, to shows in Barcelona next week. Well, mm-hmm. this week, actually. Uh, they're all sold out, which is really exciting. Um, and then I'm going to uh, Denmark, then Sweden, and then Germany. Wow. Um, then I will have a little pause because I'm in the process of moving from Spain to Germany, and I have to get some bureaucracy paperwork done. Oh. Uh, oh. Wait, <laughs> are, you,
1: are you moving to Berlin?
6: Uh, no, no, to to Dusseldorf, uh, oh, with, Dusseldorf with my wife. She's German. Oh, okay. Um, I'm like I'm going there um, to reunite with her. Um, I mean,
1: German summers are a lot of fun.
6: Uh, yes, yes, it's and it's not as hot as in Spain, which no. I'm grateful for.
1: Yes, yes, and, yes, yes.
6: Well, and then there will be more concerts uh, on the next, second half of the year, but those remained t- uh, to be honest. And then
1: festivals as well, correct? Yes,
6: in in, in Czech Republic, in, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in Germany as well. So there, we will announce that <laughs> eventually.
1: Okay, I will I will spoil it. Um, listen. Um, before we get the last song. If people want to listen to the album, which comes out again, actually it'll be out by the time this airs because this sh- episode is going to air on the 12th. So your album will be out by the time people, where can they go listen? Where can they go share your wonderful music?
6: Well, they can find it on, on Spotify, Apple Music, and any other streaming platform. It's also available on, on Bandcamp, on my own Bandcamp for digital downloads and on Oscar Oscarsons uh, Bandcamp for limited edition vinyl.
1: Ooh, this is a nice vinyl. This will be a nice vinyl to have and support Bandcamp. Shout out to them. Um, all right. What's the last song you want to play for us? What's the story behind it?
6: Uh, it's um, Atardecer Orillas del Mar, which is the, the, the closing uh, track of the album. It's, it symbolizes death.
1: Well, there we go. And what a great way to close the show. Sergio, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Congratulations again.
6: Thank you so much for for, for this, for for the opportunity to to talk a bit. And um, yeah, hope people will enjoy this new record.
1: I, I have no doubt they will. Thank you to George for setting this up. And thank you for Kevin and Amber. And congratulations to Stack Steiner as well. Here we go one last time. Sergio Diaz de Rojas live on Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. We see you next week.
0: We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical
3: dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
1: Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.